Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I remember this time around, if you remember from our last episode, what the record button looks like. I uh, previously did not know that I had started the recording and had to edit it. You will all not hear the audio that was previously presented, but figured it out. And here we are. So welcome back. We told you we'd be bringing you part two for the week. We told you we'd talk a little bit about the Champions League. We told you we'd talk a little bit about some of the teams in Spain. And honestly, there's some other non-Spanish and non-Champions League uh, updates related to the world of football, of course, that uh, I'm sure Rian will be putting in a DOA for um, very shortly. So <laughs> anyway, with that, um, of course, I'm joined by Rian, a Rian who goes in the office, he just told me four times a week out of five, which seems just wildly ineffective at this point in the pandemic when everyone kind of just wants to do some sort of hybrid thing. Yeah, it, it's, um, I guess by definition, it's hybrid, but uh, yeah, it, uh, barely, but yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's like, I hate to admit it. I really, really hate to admit this, but I am just more productive when I'm in my office than at home. Uh, maybe that has more to do with just like I have one monitor here versus two in the office. Maybe, maybe that's it, or maybe it's like there's almost no one sitting around me right now because they're just like desks that aren't really used, and people are just not coming in uh, in the <laughs> at least in the area that I'm sitting in, and I'm not like sitting necessarily with everyone else in my team. But uh, yeah, some days it some days it is kind of like a why was I here? It's like all of my calls are like on Zoom or something. But yeah, but yeah, I I think weirdly I as I said, I'm unfortunately more productive in there. And I don't know. I mean, I've for me, and I guess for you too, Elias. Um, honestly, like at this point, we've spent most of our professional career either in like in our house, like in in our apartment. Working oh my in god! Apartment, yeah. So. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a hundred percent true. It's it funny is weird because, to go back. Yeah, it's very weird. And I was talking to someone at work about how like this is one of the first times that I'm starting to have conversations with my clients about meeting up in person and like doing workshops in person. And I realized that is the first time I will probably be doing that, <laughs> which is just nuts to me. Just so weird. I also don't know how I'm gonna like interact with people for the first time in a very long time, like on a regular basis. I just don't know what to expect, but I'm really hoping for the best because we've lost social skills over the last two and a half years. Like just, I feel that I honestly, up until maybe the last couple days in my office, like I, uh, I've started to get back those, like uh, some of those like in office social skills or yeah. just like talking to people that, that I, that I work with on, um, on a day-to-day basis more in like a more casual way, Yeah, which is just not something that I've had to do for you know, <laughs> better part of two years now, almost three years. So Literally. Uh, it's an adjustment of course. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's weird. It's still weird. It's still, it's still like not remotely back to what it was uh, when I, when I first started working. So I guess it's just how it's going to be realistically yeah. for, for 
the rest of time. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, there's honestly, I wish and I hope that there's a world where we can all continue to just work at home slash in the office as much as we want, like just up to our discretion. But I fear that uh, everyone's corporate daddy is going <laughs> to go the other way <laughs> at some point in the next like six months. What yeah, do I know? That's the, uh, yeah, we'll see on that. That's, that is the kind of um, elephant in the room. What happens when things are fully back to normal? And like, you know, we Seriously. see cities, cities like here in New York and in Philly that's starting to lift mask mandates, at least like publicly. Yeah. Um, I think private, private um, buildings and places are, are still like up to whatever their discretion is but uh it'll be interesting i mean this summer will be the closest thing to a normal um environment that we've had since early yeah. 2020 so you know what i'm really excited? i'm actually genuinely very excited for this um i am very very excited to go back out and play tennis in the park or sorry not tennis soccer um like i just i remember when i came back I think it was like in 2020 where we all got together for something and it was like my first time seeing you in person in like eight months. And that was like some of the most joyous, like it was some of the big, some of the most joy I felt in a while. just like seeing people again like that. So anyway, I'm getting sappy. I've usually promised myself I don't do that, but anyway, neither here nor there. Do you want to talk about Spanish football and soccer? And I whatnot? would, I would absolutely love to at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um and, and trying to trying to lift the vibes and stay with good vibes here once again we are talking about barcelona who are now on a four game winning streak in, in all competitions uh including that big turnaround win against napoli in the in the um europa league i don't know they drew the first leg but it, we even saw after that by the end of that first leg it seemed like Barcelona were the much better side um, and they carried it on into the second leg and it was all topped off I mean this this winning run starts with that that Atletico Madrid win right where where it was we talked about it, it was the best that they that Barcelona has looked maybe since I mean maybe since Ernesto Valverde was the coach like realistically yeah um, I mean and- uh- <laughs> I, I I can't believe that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's topped off by this past weekend, a 4-0 win against uh, Bill Bow, where it was utterly dominant, utterly dominant win and utterly dominant and really pleasing on the eye, which we haven't had a lot of those two things together for Barcelona also. Yeah. Like in a consistent basis. And, and we've seen it now for, like I said it, not just these last four wins, but I think we've seen it really for the last month, month and a month and a half. It's been building, I should say. It's been building to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, for you, Elliot, like, we don't have to. You can talk about it from the beginning of Xavi's reign to to where they are now, or you can or you can take it as um, from the beginning of the season to right now. But for you, what do you think has changed the most in this team? Um, especially in the last six or seven weeks. Yeah, it's it's hard to pinpoint one specific thing because I think there are a couple. But honestly, the biggest thing for me is actually very little to do with football. Um, the one thing that I think Ronald Coleman was criticized the most for was 
just the fact that his team didn't really play inspirational football, right? There's no seeming, seemingly there's no energy, but I think it's also important to keep in mind that he had players like Pedri injured for a majority of the time uh, in the first half of the season. Gavi and Nico really were not at their best. Frankie de Jong was probably one of the better players in kind of the first two months of the season and then sort of tailed off. Um, you know, the back line continued to have its problems. So there is an element of him not having all the available players. And funny enough, he mentioned that in an interview today, um, just like the bitter old man in the living room that didn't get enough time. Yeah. Clay, I mean, that, that was the funny part, right? I didn't have enough. I, I didn't, I didn't, ha- he didn't just say he didn't have enough time. He said, I didn't, they didn't give me as much time as Xavi, which I mean, the last time that I checked how, how math and days and weeks and months work. <laughs> I believe Ronald Koeman had almost a season and a half and Xavi has been the coach for four months at least. Yes. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) precisely. (laughs) Both statements are correct. And that was the funny thing is a lot of people were responding to those comments with, well, you, you bottled the league last season (laughs) when you had it in your grasp, like it was totally in your control. With Lionel Messi on the team. With with Lionel Messi on the team. Right. Exactly. So there's a massive difference there. And to answer your question, one of the things that I feel like has changed the most for the team, like I said, it's not footballing, but it's purely the mentality and the enthusiasm and the perspective of this team. I think Chavi came in and really turned around the fact that this side is no longer the same side that, you know, in press conferences, for example, Ronald Coleman would talk about how, oh, you know, we'll try and win the league and we'll try and get three points against big clubs and make it to you know, the X stage of the Champions League. So now, Xavi the other day is talking about how they want to fight for the league. Granted, it's not going to happen. Like, they're not going to win the league. But it's the idea that they will continually fight for every game rather than just kind of succumb and accept what is, I guess, the reality of this team. And in and of itself, that has changed performances like directly on the field, right? Like, you're seeing a team that completely has overhauled the attack. I mean, when I say completely, I mean, literally the three starting players in a majority of these games have not been players that were here two months ago. Baron Torres, Aubameyang, and Adama Traore. Obviously, hindsight 2020, but seemingly all three of those players are great business for, for the club. I don't know where they got the money. I Quite frankly, I really don't know. I'm assuming Coutinho's uh leaving is is a big part of why they're able to do that and i i kind of know that but yeah to answer your question it's the fact that this team is very dedicated and believes in chappy like they do extra training sessions after games right they're so focused and so just hyper obsessed with the details of of training of of taking care of your body of things that like seemingly didn't matter like we've seen Players talk about how like training sessions in the past under Valverde, under Komen, Setien, like they just weren't that intense. Now it's just, it's a, it's a completely different management style. Yeah. I, I've Look, the vibes are effervescent, dude. immaculate even now, right? Just from that switch of the negativity that kuman brought to a lot of those post-match press conferences were mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'm just I'm just thinking back to that whole the whole saga with Ricky Pooge, who I, I realize has, has also not played very much um, since Xavi has come in, but still, like, just that's just a kind of a microcosm of the Kuman era. Him him basically calling Ricky Pooge a rat, like a like a snitch, like the yeah. So um, that 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 stuff is really nice to see that that the players are obviously happier under Xavi. Uh, it's also really helpful that as you said there are players that are available now like I mean Pedri not playing for most of the first half of this season didn't help anyone Ronald Koeman or the team Um, but also you're seeing Xavi also bring out some development in players as well right and you know not to always bring things back to the U.S. (laughs) um the national team but another player that's that's kind of a microcosm of how good Xavi's man management has been so far is what he's done with Serginho Dest yeah someone who was basically non-existent for the first couple months of um of Xavi's time right and was on and off, hit or miss, especially for the first half of the season and for all of the issues that have kind of dogged him for most of his young career, which is like the defensive side and just switching on. And the last four weeks, or three, uh, maybe two to three weeks since he's come back into the side, it's been interesting to see that first, when he was reintroduced, he was sitting back a lot more. He wasn't going forward as much. But over the last few games, you've you've seen him creep up more and more, and you can see the confidence coming back into him. And so, Elise, I'm, I'm just curious, and what have you seen that's kind of changed with Serginho Des? Yeah, I mean, this has been like a personal favorite, right, for me in terms of player development. We've seen you could argue argue Pedri has Pedri to me is world class at this point. I don't think there's really a debate about that. Um, and if there is, I encourage you to go back and watch this past weekend's game. The Meg, I, I, the Meg from this past was, weekend and, oh. and the crowd and the reaction of the fans right afterwards was, yeah. I, if, if anyone gets a chance to go back and watch the highlights, I, I highly recommend it. Pedri Meg's um, a, a, a Bilbao defender, like right on the touchline, I think in their own, in Barca's own half, in, in their right? own half. Yeah. A back it's a basically a back heel through the legs <laughs> and, as soon as he does it, the whole crowd just like pops, and then the camera goes straight to the fans right by the Meg, and yeah. they're going crazy. And it was, it's, it's really, it's it's beautiful. It really was. And my favorite part of that was like, I think there's a father son duo right behind him, and like his like the father was just looking so proud and looking down at the son, like ah, you're witnessing greatness. <laughs> like it was a very like Simba esque moment. Um, but yes, yeah, to, to go back to your point about Sergio Dest. One thing that has really stood out to me, like I said, this is personally like one of my favorite things to see an American player developing at my favorite club in the world is really desk positioning, right? I sent Rian this article yesterday. I thought it was really, really eye-opening. One of the things that Sergino Desk did at Ajax really well that I think was a big reason why Barcelona wanted him is his ability to drift in and out of space, especially kind of um, the half spaces in the final third, and that, you know, kind of the wider position uh, to get, especially out of the way for, for oncoming runners. And or Xavi has specifically started to utilize him like that in this Barcelona side, whether it's on the left or it's on the right. 
one of the things that we've seen in the last couple of games is yes, he's played a little bit of left back um, filling in for Jordi Alba, but his ability to drive forward is his greatest strength. And I think Xavi's recognized that. I think he's seen that his ability to drive more route route one and more direct than most other people is probably what gives him kind of a leg up on your Danny Alves of the world who can't really just physically do that at this point. But I think what's really growing into his game is his ability to read the game much more. And he's finding spaces on that right-hand side that give him kind of more individual space to run behind the back line, whether that's through the help of playing off Ferran Torres or where that's the help of coming more inside to that outside, right. And combining with Adama. Um, I think Xavi is re- really, really recognizing his, his worth and kind of the, uh, really the strength of an inverted fullback. Yeah. And Hmm. I wonder where Xavi learned that, <laughs> <laughs> that inverted fullback. So sure. Uh, Maybe one of his coaches, maybe one of his past coaches. No, I never heard of him. Uh, Next. <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah. Who knows where he was influenced? You know, you know who 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 plays that position really well that I don't think you'll expect me to say this. Marcelo in his day was probably the best inverted fullback that I've seen. I think he especially in that like 2016-17 time frame, like combining it with Ronaldo, that was probably some of the best combination I've seen. Yeah, look at that. See, Ellis can be biased. No, unbiased. <laughs> Un- unbiased. Sorry, unbiased. Unbiased. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's the only time you will ever say that I can be unbiased. <laughs> uh, all right, Ellis. Well, from the very good vibes of Barcelona um, and Xavi to the uh, better vibes in the last couple of weeks from, from Atletico yeah. Madrid, right? Um I think this past weekend, I think when they won again, it was their first time winning two games in a row. I checked it since like October of this yeah. year, of of, yeah. of, um, of this season. So uh, they came off with two good, two good wins, two straight shutouts too, which is, I'm sure Diego Simeone will be even <laughs> more happy about. That's right? that's the, actually the kicker. I think the whole team is excited about the fact that they did not concede to a Celta Vigo side in which they had maybe 35% possession, something like that. So it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. And it almost never is with them. So, (laughs) um, but just kind of looking ahead to this week um, and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe it's it's not this week. Maybe it's next week, right? The um, they're, they're tied against their second leg against Manchester United. Yep. In the round of 16 in the champions league at old Trafford. I tweeted it after the first leg, you know, to anyone, <laughs> anyone that um, didn't watch that first leg, you, I, I mean, if I could trade spots with you, if I could get those two <laughs> hours back of my life, <laughs> I would do anything for it. Um, so, I was just kind of going into that tie, the second leg. What were your impressions of the first leg? Um, did you think there was a better side? And how are you feeling about Atletico Madrid's perspective going to the second leg? Yeah, so I think, and you can check me on this, right? I'm being as objective as possible and saying United, I think we're lucky to get something out of this game. 
I, I genuinely think that Atletico played some of their, their best football that they have in a while. Sadly, I'm saying that while they got one shot on target. And of course that was Jao Felix's um, header into the goal, which by the way, a great goal. Um, I think I said this immediately after he scored, but every game that he has started in the last month, I believe he has scored in. So jot that down. Um, <laughs> it was a great header. It really was. It really was. And it might, it might seem a little shocking to people listening and saying a team with one shot on target that had 37% possession in that game was the better side. And I wholeheartedly stand behind that largely because I think what Simeone did really well is basically overloaded the midfield. Like realistically, Marcus Lorente and I will absolutely shout out Condogbia, who had probably he's probably one of Great my game. my favorite players on the pitch that game, um, <clears throat> for his distribution, for his all around tackling. To just he was seemingly everywhere. I mean, quite honestly, like playing in the heart of the the center of the the pitch. Now, now, granted, I had this realization after the game. He was up against a, a combination of Fred and a Bruno Fernandez who didn't really move until like, I don't know, the last 15 minutes of the game. So it made his life a little easier, but um, generally speaking, I liked like that midfield structure. And I liked that he started Angel Correa and Jao Felix, right? Two faster players, two players that can get behind defensive lines against uh, some combination of, of Varane and um, Harry Maguire. Varane is one of the fastest players in the Premier League. I don't think people realize that he's quite quick, um, but Harry Maguire is not that. And I also don't think Lindelof and Luke Shaw are that. So they caused them problems. And on the counter, having that speed was a massive, massive, massive help. Um, and I think largely, I mean, again, great goal by Alanga. Um, I think the way oh, that... Well, well I, I was, I was going to comment. I was going to comment. <laughs> I, I still think it's a, it's a well-taken goal. Um, now a certain individual mm. who shall not be named <laughs> falling over the way that well, he, did. he should be named. Uh, look, I, re- I all, refuse all, uh, all credit, all credit to Alanga to make the run that literally no other Manchester United forward or attacker exactly. was making that entire game. Um, it, it, great on him to, to make that run and get into that position. But <laughs> man, I, I think I tweeted right after it, like, Oblock's positioning, not even not even just the fact that he fell over like a literal loaf of bread. It's his positioning was absurd. You look at where the ball yeah. actually went in. It's I think it was uh maybe someone who did the postgame for CBS. Um maybe it was Peter Schmeichel who said like the ball was maybe like a few feet away from the corner. Yeah. Like, like he said maybe almost six feet away from the corner. Uh and you look at you look at the play and, and Oblock is so far past his front post and there's so much of the goal for Ilanga to shoot at it's we've we've talked about um Oblock's issues this this season but it's just going to keep it's just going to keep persisting it's not going to stop he's he's in a terrible run of form and, and look I, I sympathize because I, I watched Balaga <laughs> go through this at Chelsea, right? And it's and when it's happening, it's just like every shot 
you're nervous yeah. and every shot feels like it could go in even if it's not a good one right and and that alanga shot wasn't wasn't a particularly good shot it was the ball was not moving very quickly and as i said you know there was a lot of goal to shoot at and he's just kind of in this in that rut right now and and, and i think a lot of it is mental i i yeah. said this with, with keppa as well you don't get to that to the level of Yano Block of, and then just <laughs> deteriorate. <fall off. laughs> yeah, it's not. He, he, it's not like you just lose all that ability. It's I, I don't know what's going on with him. You know, off the pitch, but this whole season he's looked. He's he's had literally the, the worst shot save percentage in Europe's top five leagues. Like he, he it, like bottom to bottom. Like we're calling a spade a spade, and. I agree with you. I mean, we talked about it, but I think the only thing could be mental. Maybe there's an element about that potential, those potential rumors, right? Where he was potentially on his way to Chelsea, potentially out of on his way out of Atletico that have made an impact on his, you know, mental standing. But I, I honestly just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and look, the, the positioning stuff is, is kind of unforgivable you can't really you can't really um excuse that but i think you even see it sometimes he's scared to come out of his goal a lot like yeah. crosses especially and and maybe that who knows how much of that is mental how much of that is just that that kind of is his his style is not a not a keeper that rushes out very much too yeah. so and he really does kind of um rely on his shot stopping ability which at its best it's it's like at worst like second or third best in the world so like yeah um it, it's it's difficult to watch him go through this but uh going back to just the atletico man united tie i agree with you i think the first leg they were they were better it, it was disappointing the this first half they were much much better the second half they sat back a lot which yeah which you I know i i have fun. i have an interesting thought on united in this game they did sit back a lot, and I really did think the release of Marcus Rashford and, and Jordan Sancho would have helped, especially kind of in the half spaces. But we talk a lot about how Ronaldo has been largely a potential detractor from this game. I kind of started to realize that the only chances that were being created were going through him in some capacity. And I thought that was a really interesting shift from what we're seeing in the Premier League with United because Ronaldo came in to purely be a goal scorer. Like he had no other chance creation type of responsibilities, at least on the surface. But now he is, I mean, outside of Bruno Fernandez, turning into that sort of player. Like I'm not, not maybe not that sort of not, player. Not I, think that's, I think no, that's a stretch. No, no. I think that's a stretch. Yeah. I get what you're saying. No, go on. Sorry. I'm, I'm just saying that good things can happen if the ball goes through him, right? Especially if they play centrally um, and, and they want to find him in those positions. Like his ability to turn and distribute is still strong, but he's just probably not at 100% when it comes to goal scoring or 100% when it comes to chance creation in either category so you're like getting 60 percent of both that's that's like <laughs> yeah. how i'm thinking about it yeah i was gonna say like, like it, he does drop deep a lot and i'm not sure if that's necessarily a good thing for the team it's a, i mean obviously he wants to touch the ball and that's kind of been some of the criticisms with um 
how the team plays when he's in it is that it he whether or not players are conscious of it they try to play through him they try to get him the ball a lot and it seems like at times it's just such a force i mean like bruno fernandez he looks up and he's always looking to play it's ronaldo and it's i think i think that part is a detriment to the team the overall team play especially when you look at it, he's just not the same player obviously like and why would how could he be he's 36 like how could he possibly be the same player um but yeah the whole thing around him is is really difficult really really difficult situation um for Rania because I do think that as we've seen over the past few weeks like they're playing better there's there's something there it just it just needs to be refined and maybe that refinement means a certain number seven has to not be playing nearly as much as he is but we know that politically that is way easier said than done when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo So from there, Elias, shall we move on to the big Derby, the big yes. Seville Derby from this past weekend? This was one of my favorite games to watch this weekend. I didn't, I, I mean, like I knew it was going to be a big game, obviously, but I actually thoroughly enjoyed it. Like the atmosphere in this stadium was beyond what I could have expected. Like, Sid Lowe wrote an article, interestingly enough, about uh, the Seville Derby, and, and it was very, very well written, obviously, but it talked about kind of the significance of the Derby in, in some detail. And I guess in some ways I hadn't realized how big it was for the fans. Like, obviously, for the teams and, and especially the season, it's it was massive. It was second against third. But for the fan, like, like the, there's just – 11th man or I guess 12th man aspect of this was just beyond what I've seen in recent history. Um, and I'm including El Clasico in that. So yeah, very, very interesting. Um, sorry, go on, Rian. No, no. I, the only thing I had to add is that you know, the actual who won the game is the Sevilla came out on top here, two, one win that keeps them within touching distance of Real Madrid, right? Six points off now, but for Betis, now only one point or two points sorry above or no one point right one point above uh barcelona yeah in third place with barca having a game in hand and now it's getting i'm fearing for betis in terms of staying in the top four now because uh, obviously barca i think that barca are just going to get better and better as this season goes yeah barring injuries of course but (laughs) um the Atletico side of it, which is just that I, I still think that's the deepest squad in the league um, in terms of talent. And it's it's just really hard to imagine that they're going to go the entire season without it clicking at any singular point, without it clicking for at least a few weeks in a row at any point. And um, it's we're, we're not going to say it's clicking yet, but we're seeing signs of life from them. And I think that's worrying from a Betis point of view, um, finishing in the top four, which look, either way, if they don't finish in the top four, if they finish fifth or sixth, that's still a pretty successful season for them. But yeah. I, I'm fearing for them in terms of uh, top four finishing. 100%. Um, I think 
I'll, I'll address the top four thing and then I'll go into the details of the game. If Real Batiste fall out of the top four, which is entirely possible, they're only a point above Atletico, two points above uh, uh, Real Sociedad, they probably don't get back into it. That's my thought because there's a pretty low chance, or I thought there would be a pretty low chance that they fall out of it anyway. But now we're talking about a situation where a dropped two points or dropped three points one weekend could literally see them go out of the top four. And from there on, I think it's very difficult for them to get back into it. I think this upcoming weekend will be so, so big for both Real Batista and Atletico because they play each other and they're two points separated. So if Atletico pull off the win, right, you're looking at a situation where all of a sudden Atletico could be in third, Barcelona could be um, in fourth, depending on you know their game, obviously, um, or Barcelona could be in third and Atletico in fourth. So I think it's it's getting a little bit tougher now for Real Betis, and they've been in the top four for so long, you've almost thought of them as a mainstay. Now, I want to shift to the game because I was thoroughly shocked at how poorly they came out and started in the first half. In the first 15 minutes of this game, guess how much possession Sevilla had? Just take a guess. First 15 minutes, okay. Mm-hmm. Now, knowing, knowing Julian Lopetegui's team, he almost will take possession over actual scoring at times. <laughs> um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess seventy percent, ninety percent possession oh, in the first fifteen wow. minutes of this game, to the point where, and and this is where the twelfth man became, I think, really, really important. Like playing in, like the Ramon Sanchez Pizjuan was like a just bloodbath for Elbatis. Like they were sitting there and had to absorb everything. And it was attack and wave after wave after wave. Funny enough, the Real Batiste ended up with higher possession on the game because they did start to ease back into things in the in the second half, courtesy of um our, our friendly midfield, I guess I wouldn't call them duo, but uh Canales um and Nabil Fakir towards the end of the first half especially played a big part of that. But in this first half, down the wing it was relentless, and that basically sealed it for Sevilla. Um, Rakitic putting away a penalty uh, from uh, a foul from Claudio Bravo that just was very poor. He was honestly very poor, poor overall in the game, and Nasiri getting in behind Mark Bartra and, and finding himself basically in front of the goal with only Claudio Bravo, and Bravo decides that he likes to take out feet instead of getting the ball. Um and then Munir, again, shooting right past Claudio Bravo. Like, it was preventable. There were preventable mistakes. And honestly, in a world where Claudio Bravo does not screw up both times, you're looking at a game where Sevilla possibly drew or, I mean, who knows? Maybe they lost in the second half. But without those, yeah, that was the biggest difference. Claudio Bravo's kind of <laughs> bottle job, if you will. And those first 15 minutes were just relentless. Um, I will, I will say Sergio Canales' free kick goal, um, in like very, very late on in the second half was beautiful. Like Bono had no chance, but it, this game was honestly over after the first, what felt like 15 minutes. Yeah. I, I, Claudio Bravo isn't, I would say he's never really impressed me, especially as I can only think back to when he joined Manchester City back, I think it was like 2016 or something like 2016, that. 2016, yeah. He, well, was, he, he came from Barcelona, Pep's, yeah. Yeah. 
he was Pep's goalkeeper in that first season at City and uh yes notoriously bad at the actual shot stopping part of, <laughs> of goalkeeping yeah. yeah he's he's good at other things it's just and I think he had a good spell at Barcelona as well it's just it seemingly has not panned out in this game. I won't say the whole season because Batiste have, I mean, over the course of the season, they're obviously in a great position, but they haven't been like the most solid defensive side. Yeah. And I think what worries me the most about them, they've got eight losses already. I mean, not already. Right. We're, we're more than halfway through the season, but they've got eight losses. Everyone else who's in the top four right now, Madrid with two, Sevilla with two losses, Barcelona with four. Betis has more losses than any other team in the top eight. Like they, yeah. Yeah. That's that's really worrying. And, that, and that's a bad trend, I think, for when you're looking at teams that could actually finish um, in the top four. 100%. Yeah. And um, they may potentially add to that this weekend uh, against Atletico. That's, that might be the fear. I mean, Real Batiste will absolutely think they have a chance. And I think they do. I mean, they're as of today, you know, they drew with Rayo Vallecano and they're in the Copa del Rey final, but yeah, I, I mean, it's entirely impossible that they lose on over the weekend. So you never know, Rian, you never know what's next. Next, Elias, some, some more exciting news for the Spanish national team who, as I said, at the end of the Euros, I feel like that team has, is going to be a dark horse going into um, going to the World Cup this year. Jeremy Pino, who burst onto this scene and with the national team last fall, I can't remember if he was actually on the Euro squad, but a hat trick this past week, a hat trick in the first half, I should say, and four goals for Villarreal this past weekend. The guy is such a talent. I think so it was the Nations League. I think it was the Nations League that he actually got his. That's really what it was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, where he looked so good against Italy. Um, Elias, just wax lyrical about about Pino <laughs> for a second. Wow, what a great! I lo- I love that uh, that phrase. But Jeremy Pino, to me, is probably one of three of the most exciting Spanish football prospects right now, young Spanish football prospects. I think Pedri is number one. I think Brian Hill is arguably maybe debatably number two. And Jeremy Pino is either third or second. Those three are going to very much define this era of Spanish football. Um, Ansu Fati, I still have a little bit of a question mark. We'll see. But honestly, this was a beautiful, beautiful game from him. he just constantly found himself in the right place at the right time. And I've always, I've said this to Rian offline, but finding your place yourself in the right place at the right time is a product of a smart player. I had, I think, and especially if you're doing it consistently and you're doing it enough to score four goals in a game, you're doing something right. That isn't just purely luck other than like Lewandowski scoring five goals in nine minutes. That was luck. <laughs> but like, generally speaking how dare you <laughs> no, no 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 that just won't ever happen again but um Jeremy Pino over the weekend basically created like three xg alone like something wild um a big part of that was the fact that he put a lot of pressure on Espanol during this game and basically occupied the thoughts and minds of 
like Espanol's fullbacks at all times. It was relentless. And none of the goals to me honestly stood out as like great shots or absolute world beaters, but they were smart goals. And that's what I really appreciated about them. And fun fact, he is the only player in Villarreal history to score four goals in one game. The only player. And if you think about some of the very best strikers who played for Villarreal, obviously, I mean, Gerard Moreno right now, um, you have, oh my God, what's our, well, Diego Forlan, right? Um, you at some point had Giuseppe Rossi, right? So, so really, really great strikers and great players. It's the teenager that's done it first for this team. So, Rian, I have high hopes for Jeremy Pino. I have high hopes for him for the Spanish national team. I really do wonder what potentially happens in a couple of years with him if he leaves Villarreal. He's got a good contract for now, but we never know. I think some people in some clubs are taking notice, as they did with Brian Hill. I mean, as they should, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You're, I mean, I think you put it really well. His, his kind of nose for goal, especially this past weekend, Look, that's hard to teach. That's like really, really hard to teach. We don't just get into those positions um, by accident, right? And, and I think the best of the bunch was probably his, his fourth goal where he skips past the keeper to score. Yeah. But um, it's it's really impressive to see for someone who's 17, 18, Alex? Um, that's a good I, I think he's 18 now. Yeah. I will verify that. Oh, he's 19 now. I like just turned yeah. 19, so thought he was 18 but yes still a teenager yeah so as you said there's quite a future um growing for uh the spanish national team and if Ansu Fati can stay healthy i put him probably second behind pedri there so that's uh yeah that's kind of the big question mark right what happens with his knee what happens with his muscles um but if he can stay healthy yeah yeah he's he's definitely in the top three definitely top two as well well with that kind of being the Spanish news and all of the Spanish updates, um, I will say I'm very excited um, to see. I- I'll say this. This is the last thing on the Spanish teams. I know we didn't t- touch on the Europa League, but I think that there's a very high chance that not only a, I would say two Spanish teams make the semifinal and a Spanish team wins the Europa League. I think that's entirely possible. You have Barcelona, Sevilla, and Real Betis in in the Europa League right now. I think it's possible that two make the semifinal and and a Spanish team wins the Europa League. But anyway, I need a break because that is probably the best way to go out on a high note before I break, and then we'll talk about some other non-Spanish things. But yes, that's my claim. All right, so we are back after the break. We are, I guess, happy, sad. I don't really know how I feel about this. Rian, we're going to be talking about some non-Spanish news really quickly, um, but it's very important for kind of the world of football and what's going on in the world in general. As of yesterday afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, Roman Abramovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club, has announced that he will be selling the club. He has been the owner since, what, 2003, I believe? 
and very much been kind of, uh, I guess I'm taking a back seat to the club's operations and things like that, but certainly funded as much of the club as, uh, as you can. Rihanna, how do you feel about this? I, I just kind of want to know off the bat and I know you'll kind of share the statement and, and some details, but I just want to know how you as a Chelsea fan are reacting to this. Yeah. Um, I, I think, I, I think I do want to start, start with the statement just, just because I, I, a lot of my thoughts will come, will jump off of what he said in, um, in the statement that he put out on, as he said, Wednesday night or Wednesday night, for, Wednesday afternoon for us night for, English but um there's one one big excerpt from the statement Abraham is saying sale of the club will not be fast-tracked but will follow due process I will not be asking for any loans to be repaid this has never been about business nor money for me but about pure passion for the game and club moreover I've instructed my team to set up a charitable foundation where all net proceeds from the sale will be donated the foundation will be for the benefits of all victims of the war in Ukraine. This includes providing critical funds toward the urgent and immediate needs of victims, as well as supporting the long-term work of recovery. I mean, that's the that's the reason this is all happening, right? The the war in Ukraine, Russia invading Ukraine. And I think to go back to your, your first question is how am I feeling about this? Yeah the sale itself whatever like whatever it's it's kind of unimportant to to like what is the root cause of all of this right and what's going on and why why we're in this position right um i think the last few days i have kind of been met with this um really sick feeling honestly you know i i'm not gonna sit here and act like at almost any point in my supporting of chelsea i have really been um against the human being roman abramovich even knowing the some of the inklings of what his past was and i've never really looked into any of it because I simply didn't want to know. And, and that's what kind of makes me feel sick, honestly. Um, and, and I am not going to be do like, you know, crocodile tears or anything with this. Right. Um, it, it is what it is. And, and it's, and it's something that I don't feel great about. Um, and it kind of pains me that it took me this long to really give a shit about it. Right. And and knowing his past, knowing his history, especially with um, the breaking of the Soviet Union. And uh, I think uh, one of these the Guardians Football Weekly podcasts brought this up this week. Um, we got a good point. Like, how does anyone um, who's Russian and and extremely rich as he was, you know, how else could they have become? that rich how else do they become that powerful without yeah. having full backing of the the regime and um, i know elias here you're more of the international relations guy here since it was really literally your major so, so you can always um you know if you have any insights on that stuff you can jump in but just from the abramovich part of this it's it's um it's tough dude i get it 
sports is so much of trying to not think about real world events and, and trying to get away from all of that. And I think for like almost my entire time supporting Chelsea, that's kind of how I've treated the owner self. And now I'm, and myself and, and a lot of Chelsea supporters are in this spot where we have to reckon with what we've, what we've uh, enjoyed over the past 15 years right uh, you know that you reap what you sow of course right it's it's um it's tough and and some of the things that i've seen on um the chelsea subreddit over the past few days a lot of praising the um revenue himself a lot of um glorifying that the person self and i really applaud some of the people who have commented in the subreddit as well that saying you know i saw a post uh, yesterday of someone saying there should be a statue or something built of him or, or, or a stand named after him and i really couldn't believe what i was reading honestly and, and um as someone who commented said with some real sense is like that's it's crazy because there's two things can be true the time that Roman Abramovich has been the owner of Chelsea has brought a lot of joy to all Chelsea supporters. He's made life as a football fan so much better, right? But the other side of it, he he also has a terrible past, has a terrible past and, and has, and, has done terrible things as a human being in his, in his life. And it's something that now every Chelsea fan has to reckon with. And myself and all of them have, have all turned a blind eye to it pretty much. And, and I mean, uh, the, the entire sport itself has turned more or less a blind eye to it as we've continued to let these types of shady past and even shady present. I mean, call, call it what it is, right? It's sports washing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, and 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 that's what makes me the most sick is that it literally has worked. It's worked. I mean, I I didn't need this sale to happen to to say that it's worked, but um, knowing that the entire time it, it's it also worked on myself um, doesn't make me feel good at all. Like I, this is this has all been a very very difficult few days um, coming to grips with. You know, support of a, of a club that I have like a lot of good emotions linked to um and as I said you know the, the sale now it's who who buys the club whatever like I know we're going to talk about who, who is is in line to buy the club but like it's all totally meaningless right now because it it's time for him to to be out of the club. It's time for him to to go, and and probably it it should have happened. Um, for he shouldn't have been allowed in the first place. I I think my that was the funny thing about it, I think the Newcastle sale last summer, where when the Premier League was when everyone was kind of up in arms, like they can't let this happen, whatever, whatever. But the thing in the back of my mind was always like the cat was out of the bag when they let him yeah, buy the club. Like, like there's there's no longer. Um, there's, there's no, they can't, they can't, they, they couldn't stop that Newcastle sale happening because of human rights stuff like that. They were far past that between that and, uh, between 
Abramovich and and um, the Sheik buying buying Manchester City, right? Um, it's hilarious now that now uh, the Premier League are considering putting in human rights um, standards for for new owners. It's like what? <laughs> I mean, yes, I mean, obviously that should be there, but you know, it's kind of um, it's it's a bit of a farce to do it to to i mean they have to do it obviously but but it's it's not going to be retroactive they're not taking away the club from newcastle's owners or or manchester cities right so uh, on our episode on monday i said this is kind of the sad reality of of being a, a um a football fan right now is that there are this this is how it is this is this this is a possibility your team could be bought by at any point by uh, a terrible person maybe it'll happen less now but um that is how it is i mean and it's kind of how football's always been you know i in spain it was general franco a terrible terrible human being dictator bankrolled yeah. real madrid for decades yeah and and uh, it, it it's the history of the sport is laden with corruption and dirty dirty money and and um this is just another chapter in it and a chapter that you kind of hope is one of the final ones but most likely not yeah yeah 100 it's very very difficult i think to wrap our heads around what exactly like the the level of sports washing that's occurred and and the significance of that over the last 20 years, especially, I mean, uh, throughout the history of, of the sport, let's be clear, but like, especially as it kind of the distribution of wealth and income becomes a very, very tight funnel now. And I think that this specific sale, right, is a microcosm of a bigger problem in that, yes, Roman Abramovich was a bad figure to own a football club. And I also acknowledge that with his money, he probably did some great things for the club. What's even more interesting to me now is like you said, kind of the new potential owners, obviously they're going to be billionaires, but do people look at the, any new potential owners with the same scrutiny that they're looking at, you know, the Qataris or the Emiratis or, the Saudis, like what level of scrutiny do they get now? Um, because I, I genuinely don't know the answer to that. I would think that it would be the same, but a part of me almost believes that people will just turn a blind eye again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the real question mark now. Right. So just, just to look at what's what the rumors now of what's going to happen for Chelsea going forward. The front runners right now for the sale of the club um, is Swiss billionaire Hans-Jörg Weiss, um, who I believe will be getting his own team, a consortium that will include the current owner of the LA Dodgers, Todd Bowley. They expect this sale to happen very quickly and of course, I would expect the same because Roman Abramovich has a chance of being sanctioned in the UK. And um, although, as you would expect, he's got some supporters in the UK government, um, one that includes a terribly groomed blonde buffoon 
uh, um, in Boris Johnson, who has kind of skirted every question uh, about <laughs> sanctions to, to Roman Abramovich and and and, and all and you know um, any other oligarchs that that have money in in the UK. Um. Yeah, I mean that's that's the those that's the front runner right now. It could happen as quickly as this this weekend. Um, Abramovich said in his statement that net proceeds of the of the sale of the club will go towards victims in Ukraine. And and, and I just knows, what does point, that mean? I I, I want to just point out before you even go any further, he specifically mentioned and said the war on Ukraine. Yes, not not the quote unquote, uh, military operation or special operation or whatever Putin has, uh, you know, forced everybody in Russia to call it. He specifically called it a war, which like Rian mentioned, the IR brain to me is finds it very interesting. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the interesting, yeah, that is extremely interesting because over the past weekend, when he put out that first statement about, you know, give, handing over stewardship to the charity, it was, um, I think it was something like, I think it was worded as like the ongoing conflict in Ukraine or something like that. Not, didn't use the word war. Um, using the word war here, yeah, big, big <laughs> kind of thing to say from a, from a Russian oligarch. Um, I know I've heard people say that he should condemn the the invasion, right? But not, not to defend him at all here, but you kind of, like, for anyone asking that, like, <laughs> You do know that this is Russia. This is Putin, who has assassinated had people assassinated for saying much, much less. Right, than, right, right. Like he, the reason that you will never, you will never hear Roman Abramovich condemn what's happening in Ukraine, is because he is probably afraid of his family and himself getting assassinated. So like, asking for that, I mean, it would be great if he would say it, right? Like it would, it would, it would see, it would be a seminal moment in in um Russian politics right but it's never going to happen none of those oligarchs are going to say they're not even going to say that he invaded Ukraine so much less condemn it um right so I, I, yeah look, look going going forward again who knows um uh, Abramovich also said he's not going to ask for the loans to be repaid that's that's great to hear from, from you know when you're thinking about this the health of the club going forward but same time as has uh one of my coworkers even theorized like that the uk government could have easily said to him you know you're no you can't take any of that money like, yeah this is like this is this is this is like your any any sort of, of transactions yeah, yeah. Might, might very well have been yeah we're subject to heavy scrutiny let's just call it that <laughs> exactly exactly so you know you can't tell if he's, if any of this is in good faith or if any of this is just trying to cover his ass as he as he tried to do over the past weekend by you know giving stewardship to the charitable fund uh foundation so right it's all um as i said it's all it's all uh it just it sucks it's uh, it's i mean obviously my level of, of it sucks it means nothing on a on like perspective wise of what's actually happening in the world um but it, 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 you just have to come to grips with it now. And um, if you're a Chelsea supporter specifically, and and it, we can't glorify him anymore. Like like when this no. happens, it, I'm not saying we have to. Everyone has to act like it. Like he was never the owner, right? But it's just that every time you have to you have to consider the um, 
the past past and of course the consequences of his past is what we're seeing today so um it's sad i only thing i'll say about whatever whichever new owner comes in um i personally would be would be so uh, somewhat excited if, if this ownership group came in um the owner of the dodgers todd bully um the dodgers spend a lot right? and and, and <laughs> that's one do- way to put I'm it not, yeah uh, yeah they 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 in, in baseball there's like a luxury tax there's no real salary cap but if you go over a certain uh wage bill then you have to pay like heavy taxes on on each dollar over the wage you go um and the dodgers have dodgers are have put a lot of money into their teams and, and obviously they won the world series and stuff but but if he is the face of this group that comes in i will be satisfied with that and for me honestly as a chelsea supporter there are two things that i'm really looking forward to in, in whatever ownership group comes in two things that i really really want to see um i really want to see a push for the for a new stadium something that you know as much as as many great things as roman abramovich did for chelsea he tried to to build a new stadium a couple times and it never really went through and you have to imagine that a lot of that had to do with his past <laughs> and you know so so that that's that's something that always kind of held the club back and it's it's an uncertain time going forward for the club like it they, they don't make nearly as much in revenues as manchester city or liverpool or manchester united right um and their stadiums aren't nearly their stadium isn't nearly as big or modern as either of those clubs or as any of the clubs in the top six realistically like any of them it's it is the yeah. oldest it, not the oldest it's it is the i mean it's in better shape than old trafford as i've heard but it's but still modern. smaller exactly exactly so i though that's one thing that i'm looking forward to that i would like to see the new ownership group come in and do i would like to see the recruitment become more sensible um <laughs> i mean look if, if the big spending goes away that means that no more 100 million dollar 90 million 90 million pound um signings that don't really fit at all with how the team plays that i'm yeah. not going to be that sad about it um and then i think actually the third thing is that i i hope that the investment in the academy continues because that's that's the gold mine right now like that's if things if the spending has to go down there's a lot of talent there already that we see in the premier league and and i'm sure coming through the youth ranks so i I hope that that is given the same importance that it has been in the last decade or so. So um, we'll see though. It's, it's, it's an uncertain times, no matter what, this is, this is a very nervy, <laughs> who knows what this summer is going to be. And, and um, it, it's irrelevant to when you look at, when you take the perspective of what's going on um, overall and, and how we got here. So. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. Absolutely. Agreed. I wouldn't change a thing that you said. And um I think that's probably a good place, if ever, to put a bow on it and uh, remind ourselves that there are actually bigger things out there in life and people who are going through a lot. Uh, uh, like, I'll, I can't, I genuinely can't even imagine. Um, so, with that, Rian, let's wrap things up. Say goodbye to our listeners. Wave goodbye. Um, and... Rihanna actually did just wave to a host of you that are only listening to this and not watching it. But anyway, with that, we will talk to you all next week after this weekend's games. And of course, we have the Champions League coming up next week and returning and some big names who will probably not be in Europe after that. So we'll talk to you all in a couple of days. Thanks, guys. 